Well, I hope everybody had a good time on Halloween this year. And what I bet a lot of us didn't know was that that evening was this 500th anniversary, that Halloween evening. Now, that's a date that has sort of been agreed on uh, by the legend. So we don't have absolute, complete historical knowledge that he uh, hammered the door of the church on that particular day. But that's traditionally when it's uh, assumed to be. So that means that this event, which took place 500 years and five days ago, is accepted by scholars as the beginning of a new era, at least in the West of history, known as the Reformation. Luther's protest broke open a closed and corrupt religious hierarchy, and it gave, host, it gave birth to a host of new religious movements. I mean, lots of them. There were all kinds of things that broke out during that time, and all these groups that we now know as Protestant denominations basically started to emerge during that time. So the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and, and the Baptists and Unitarians and Universalists are all groups that sort of came out of this giant explosion of religious diversity once he sort of broke the ice. New ideas just came pouring out all over the place. So what caused this to happen? It, it, it couldn't have just been one guy with some ideas that he thought up. He, how did he have that kind of power? What, what caused all that change to happen? I'm going to uh, offer a few ideas from a theologian named Matthew Fox. I know some of you are acquainted with Matthew Fox. He's a wonderful, very contemporary uh, thinker who's written a book called uh, A New Reformation, which I highly recommend. So he, he says there are four things that were in the air at that time that caused this to happen. The first was a shift in technology, and the shift in technology was the invention of the printing press. And that changed everything because people were able to read. And one of the things they were able to read was the Bible. And they hadn't read the Bible before because it wasn't available. The Bible was inside the cloisters of the priests and the monks. And the way religion worked at that time was that the priests and the church said what the religion was about and defined the religion and defined what was right and what was wrong and what you should believe and what you should not believe. And there wasn't really any way to argue with that. But once the Bible was printed, people started reading the Bible and they said, wait a minute, this doesn't sound like what's going on in the church. It sounds different. And they got to be pretty riled up about that. And so there was, a, there was all this diversity of people reading the Bible and then after that, other works as well. Matthew Fox says this was the beginning of modern scholarship. The invention of the printing press and then the reading not just of the Bible, but commentaries and other works as well. People saw that the church did not seem to match up with what they read. And so they began to form other groups which they thought more closely uh, were faithful to the message. Martin Luther uh, had 
the proclamation sola scriptura, only the scripture. In other words, I will not obey any, any authority unless I find it in the Bible. That, and, he said, and then he said the famous words, here I stand, I'm not gonna deviate from that. So, that was huge. Another thing that was in the air was uh, the rise of what we call nation states, the rise of nations in Europe. And these new nations were, in many cases, glad to join up with the Protestants because then they could get under, get out from the control of the Holy Roman Empire and become independent. So for political reasons, a lot of them said, yeah, we'll be Protestants, sure. Others didn't want to. We call that diversity. The third thing was that the church was blatantly corrupt. It was blatantly corrupt. It, it, was, a, it was about, I'm not saying that there wasn't religion present in the church, but it was a lot about power and position and money and those kinds of things. And I have recommended this movie before, but if you get a chance, go see the movie. You, you can't go see it. You've got to find it somewhere. Uh, Brother, Son, Sister Moon, which is the story of uh, St. Francis and Sister Claire. And I really recommend It's a 60s movie. It's got music by Donovan. It's beautiful. It's really uh, outdated. But it shows the corruption of the church in a way that really is magnificent how bad it was. So I really recommend that movie. So corruption was huge. And fourth, what Matthew Fox calls the emergence of an educated elite. So people started to be educated. They started to read and study. And this process of studying and learning cut the support out from under the teachings of the church in many, many cases. So this plethora of religious movements emerge far beyond anything Luther could have possibly imagined, proving once again that small actions can have enormous effects. But interestingly, the protesters, to some extent, once they broke away with the church, started setting up their own rules. And some of them started to become rigid like the church had been. And I'm going to give you one example, and that is that the first Unitarian, Michael Servetus, who argued against the standard doctrine of the Trinity, and he thought that the Protestants would love this and they would jump to his side and they he would find allies, was actually burnt at the stake by one of the Protestant leaders, John Calvin. So... This seems to be part of human nature. When people rebel and reform, then they often set up new rules and then can become oppressive in other ways. So that's a story from our tradition. Our Unitarian movement is often thought of as the liberal or even the radical wing of the Reformation. We took religious freedom. After the death of Michael Servetus, people said, we need religious freedom in the world. No one should ever be treated in that way for a religious belief. So 500 years have gone by, 
Years of wars, both religious and secular, the coming and going of nations, coalitions, religious competition and cooperation, and enormous advances in technology. And is this advance of technology that many people feel has triggered a new era and a new reformation. So what would be happening in our world that would help trigger a new reformation? So I'm going to rely on Maxie Fox again, who says there's four things, and number one again is technology. We are in a period of an enormous shift in technology that is similar to the invention of the printing press 500 years ago. So the internet and portable phones and instant communication and all of these new ways of relating to each other have changed the way we live. And, cha and it's not even clear yet where that's going. There are wonderful benefits and there are serious problems to that. But it's, one thing is clear is that it has changed our world and we're not going back the other way. So this is a huge shift in the way we live. Secondly, if the Reformation 500 years ago was about the rise of nation states, our present cultural era, Matthew Fox says, is about global corporations, who in his opinion are actually the ones running the world. Now if you want, there are several ways you might uh, see how that's happening. Joseph Campbell used to say that you can walk into any place on earth and see what the tallest, any city, and see what the tallest building is, and you know who runs that society. The church used to be the tallest building. In all the old European cities, you would walk in, you'd see the church on the hill with a spire. But that's not true anymore. And it's not the government buildings either. They're kind of old-fashioned, 7th, 18th, and 19th. It's the tall, you know what the tallest buildings are. They're the buildings of the corporations. Another way that you might see that happening in the world is that at the moment we have something going on in our Congress uh, called by the name of tax reform, which is a very interesting word to use and was chosen probably by about 75 PhDs to get the very, very best word. And uh, Really, you may disagree if you wish, but it's really the corporations who are benefiting from that and in a sense are dictating what's going to be in that bill. So that's, and I, you might want to uh, go over to Panera's with me and talk about that, so we could do that. The third thing that's happening right now, Matthew Fox says, is the corruption and ineffectiveness of Western religion. The corruption and ineffectiveness of Western religion. So, he argues that in many ways, Western religion has simply failed to provide the satisfying and life-sustaining foundation that humanity needs. Now, it's obviously, I mean, it's not that everything's a failure, but overall it hasn't met the need, is his argument. Many religions support dictators and oppressive governments. Many of them have devolved into a rigid fundamentalism that doesn't serve the needs of many, many people in the world. Many religious movements in the Western world have failed to support basic human rights and civil rights for, for many, many people, failed to include women, uh, failed to include 
people of different sexual orientation and gender identity, um, failed to include different ethnic groups, and many of the religions have also carried on a battle with science that to the educated public makes religion in a way look silly. Just look silly. And that is an erosion of the status of religion, especially in this part of the world. So it's not been a great last century for religion in the West. And this leads us to a fourth condition, which Matthew Fox thinks is important, is that there is an awakened sense of scholarship in the world that questions so much of traditional religion even questions the reformed views that came out of the Reformation that often solidified into their own forms of dogma. A wonderful example of this scholarship is the course we had by Bart Ehrman uh, this year in which we listened to a highly skilled professional biblical scholar take apart the scripture and explain where it came from and why certain things are true and why certain things clearly aren't true. And you just see how good people have gotten at this, but there has been a price to the traditional views. That piece we sang this morning is the traditional. It's wonderful. God created everything. He's taking care of us at every moment, you know. Um, one can reinterpret that message in many ways, but the very traditional dogmatic part of it is weakening. So it's hard to hold on to views like original sin, virgin birth, physical resurrection, and turning water into wine, although that one would really be nice to save. We know that Martin Luther was a great fan of feasting and food and drink. He, was, he was, uh, had a little bit of a reputation as a carouser. And he is reported to have said, love God and sin boldly. <laughs> you can look that up, but don't do it right now. So... Where are we now 500 years after the start of the Protestant Reformation? And almost certainly in the midst of our own Reformation, our own time of significant world-changing events that we do not know uh, the destination of. We don't know how to predict that. A time of extreme change and, and really uh, danger in many ways. What is going on in our time and where do we fit in? I am excited by people like John Shelby Spong and Matthew Fox calling for a new reformation. And, and they put it in very strong terms. This is what has to happen. It, and, and Fox and Spong both say actually it doesn't matter whether religion in its current form really survives. It's, but it's the human race that needs to survive. 
It's all of us in, in a peaceful way living on the planet in some, some way that's sustainable and just. So <clears throat> I want to offer you just a couple of thoughts about where this could be headed. And I've drawn heavily on those two thinkers who I respect so much. First of all, dogmatic Christianity will continue to have a difficult time. The, the traditional story that includes a supernatural uh, God and create a literal creation, this teaching is going to have a hard time and will continue to have a hard time, especially in North America and Europe. Not everywhere on the planet, but particularly in, in this part of the world. And though the people who hang on to that uh, will likely shrink. Doesn't, I mean, I, I defend their right to, to uh, hold those views in this church or anywhere else. But that view is under uh, stress from science and scholarship. And so we, there'll have to be a reformation in the way we look at those old stories. We have to take that piece of music and have a new understanding of what that means. It is also interesting paradoxically that the more conservative religious groups maintain a, an amazing amount of political power in our country. And so uh, it'll be fascinating to see how that evolves. I think that will diminish I think religion, at least the most interesting kinds, will keep on a trend that is happening already towards more activism. The religions of the world will have to be on the right side of history, on the issues of our day. And so, for example, I'm active in a movement called the Parliament of the World's Religions that that meets every four or five years, and you can observe that great planetary interfaith group becoming more activist every time, and more concerned about human rights and civil rights and the environment and the possibility of war and hunger and poverty. And one can observe that those are becoming the central issues of religious concern and not questions of theology. Nobody is going to those meetings sitting around talking about whether there was a virgin birth or not. Nobody's interested in that question. It's, it's just not a, an important question right now. What the important questions are are about justice and sustainability and poverty and rights. And that trend, I think, will continue. The religions that ally themselves with wealth and power will lose credibility, I think. Because that's not a defensible position for people who, who study religion in a serious way. And the religions that ally themselves with equality and justice will have an opportunity to play a leadership role in the unfolding history of the world right now. That religions that ally themselves with equality and justice have an opportunity to play a role of leadership in the world right now. And we are candidates for being part of that. 
and we are part of that. Religion that continues to argue, argue pointlessly against science will look increasingly irrelevant to the cutting edge of what's going on in the world. That's just not a place to be. But there will be a remnant that will hold on to that sort of pre-Darwinian view of the world. And that movement actually is a problem for every religion, including ours, because it makes religion look foolish, I think. And not that people can't hold those views, that's, that's perfectly fine, but if, if religion takes a position against commonly understood scientific facts, that'll be a hard time. That's a pretty hard thing, and it will erode, I think. For example, if the climate change deniers of religion continue to hold a surprising amount of power, which they do right now, an amazing amount of power within our society, that is bad news for all of humanity. That is bad news for everyone on this planet. And so religion has a real role to play in environmental preservation, and any religious group that declines that invitation is on the wrong side of history. Especially in our part of the world, atheism and various forms of humanism will almost certainly continue to make gains in numbers in the world. Those movements are growing. And it is part of our church's good sense, I think, that we have been welcoming to those ideas for uh, at least a century, I would say. So atheists and agnostics and different kinds of humanists will grow, but the religion that is really growing in the world right now is Islam, is the fastest growing religion in the world. And so the world will need to accept the reality that Islam exists and that the overwhelming majority of Muslims are peace-loving people. The overwhelming majority. The, the, the country in the world uh, that has the largest Muslim population in the world is Indonesia. And you don't hear, you don't hear any, really any news of any sort of radical extremists in the largest Muslim country. So that's gonna be a big step for all of us. And, and it's, it's part of what uh, will allow us to have a peaceful society on earth. And there is a movement in many religions, including our own Unitarian Universalism, to make justice for every person a central part of our religious life. That it's absolutely core for us, and it's, it's a foundation for us, and it gives us a charter to be active in the world for the rights of every human being. That every human being should have full human rights in the world. That means everybody, there's no category to put outside that circle, and that becomes part of our agenda. It is very clear that interreligious dialogue is on the rise. 
religious groups and non-religious groups are increasingly meeting with each other. There are two or three groups in Peoria that are doing this right now. And I want to just share with you something that may not seem obvious, but that I truly believe is true, is that the more that groups dialogue with each other, the more open they become, the more tolerant they become, the less aggressive they become, the more uh, open to other points of view. Because if you're willing to talk to somebody, you're open to another point of view. And so that's, that quality grows. And so interreligious dialogue is something that improves the condition of the world because it reduces tension and increases friendship, even when there's lots of disagreements. It's not about agreement or disagreement. It's about being neighbors. It's about not killing other people. That's what it's about. It's not about theology. So that is on the rise, and I think that is a very good thing. And then religions must embrace their roles as peacemakers because we have serious danger of war in the world. And religions will play a role in that. And it's not just about Christianity, it's about everybody. It's not about just about Unitarian Universalism, it's about everybody. It's not just about Islam, it's everybody. But we all have religions that say we're about peace. And so if religion is gonna have a role in the world, then it has to get on, get on the path of seriously being about peace. If not, humanity may have a very bleak future. And it's everyone who has to be on board. Religious people and non-religious people. It's everybody. That's what's going to work. Our Unitarian Universalist movement has gifts to share. Because we have this tradition in our ideals about openness and honoring these different traditions, we have that as part of who we say we are. We have a gift to share then, I think. We're a small little movement, but we do have an opportunity to make a difference. Our traditions and our theology position us to be contributors to the emergence of new forms of human community, new alliances and fusion coalitions, as Reverend William Barber calls it, talks about unlikely allies. We're going to find an ally over in the evangelical church or an ally in the mosque or an ally who hates religion and won't come anywhere near our church. That's our neighbor. Those are our unlikely allies. To waste this opportunity to be of service wherever the path may lead would be, I think, a grave mistake for us. We need to be on board. We need to be part of this emerging reformation. But not going it alone. There is no future in going it alone. The future is in connection with everyone. That's where the path lies for a sustainable life on the earth. We are part of this movement. 
It's a movement about interconnection, unlikely allies, less worry about theology, and more urgency about peace, justice, equality, and survival. Our times are dangerous, but we cannot fix that right away. What we can do is be true to our principles, love our neighbors, and look for every possible chance to contribute to a more sustainable and joyful way of life on earth. Now it is our turn. <laughs>